Today's scripture reading is 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 17. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jannes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tanya. Um, isn't she wonderful? I want to go back a couple of weeks. I started a message two weeks ago. Uh, Ron Surgeon came in last week, and I thought really uh, necessarily preached a, an incredible message on grace. I hope you've had a chance to listen to it again, maybe a couple of times, because it is really, really rich. It was a feast. And I think it's really good because it's really necessary Because what I'm talking about as we continue to go through the core values of our church is I'm talking about biblical truth today. I'm continuing that from two weeks ago. And I'm afraid that in the evangelical South, when a lot of us hear about biblical truth, um, sometimes other ideas come alongside and taint or sort of take us off, off the, out of the middle of the road and stuff. Uh, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe when you think of biblical truth, you think of churches and how sometimes politicized they can become. When you think of politi- uh, biblical truth, maybe you sometimes think of uh, trying to read your Bible and get something out of the Bible and how hard it is to understand what you're reading. And so when you think about biblical truth, you don't hear joy. You're not drawn out, but rather you're sort of suffocated. You're sort of, you feel claustrophobic. Uh, There's a lot of ideas that emerge when we talk about biblical truth. And plainly, I want to say this, we believe that scripture is the foundation of the church. If you take that away, we've lost everything. So everything that we do, we attempt to build on a careful uh, interaction 
with God's word, everything that we do. So for instance, when we talk about a moment ago, having to possibly go to two services, that's not to appease your lead pastor's ego. That's not to appease my ego. It's not so we can get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. That's not our vision for our church. I want us to grow. Don't get me wrong. But what we desire more than anything at our church is to be a congregation where people can experience deep love. That's what we want. And so we don't want to have gatherings where we're, we feel like we're herding cats the whole time, trying to, trying to manage chaos. And so this is one of the reasons why we're considering going to two services, assuming that crowds stay at this level. We want to make sure that we can have services where we are comfortable together, where we can interact with one another, where we're not fighting parking every week, and we're not fighting each other in the hallways, trying to get our children checked in and checked back out from nursery. That's a core value of ours. It's not just so we can be the fastest growing church in the city. That's not our vision. Our vision is to be a growing church, but in that, lead people into a community of deep love. That's what we feel the church scene of Memphis is missing. There's a lot of fast-growing churches, and God bless them. God bless them. I don't say that with any malice in my heart. But we want to be a church where people can experience deep love. And so that means we don't want to have services that are, we feel like we're, in, you know, we're sardines in a can. And so this is something we're going to have to think through. We want biblical truth to be the foundation of every decision that we make as much as we can understand it. The, 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 the tough thing is, is that we're separated from when the pages of our Bible were written by 2,000 years of history. We're separated by a culture that is foreign to all of us. We're separated by a language that is now a dead language, ancient Greek, Koine Greek, which is now unspoken in our world. We're separated by all of these barriers. And so in order to dive back into that context and extrapolate truth and apply it to where we are now is difficult at times. But it's a responsibility that, in our opinion, every preacher and teacher of God's word has. We have that responsibility. And so we're talking about biblical truth. Why we as a church will wrestle and wrestle deeply with God's word and so we can be shaped and formed by God's word. We want to be shaped by it. And so a couple of weeks ago, I started off by giving you, uh, talking through uh, the beginning of the book of Genesis. The beginning of the book of Genesis. And I want to remind you that the book of Genesis was written to, well, maybe you can remind me. Who was it written to? Anybody remember? You're like almost confidently saying it, almost. So just, it lacks just enough confidence that I can actually hear you. So anybody just say it out loud. If you're wrong, that's okay. The Jews, God's people, the people of God with Moses in the wilderness. Tracy's going, the Jews, the Jews, you know, so, uh, <laughs> um, so it was written to God's people in the wilderness under Moses' leadership who had just come out from what? Egyptian slavery. Over 400 years of Egyptian slavery. Over 400 years where they gradually sort of didn't forget their God, but their God sort of blended in with all of the Egyptian gods. And so God appears to Moses at the burning bush and says, I want you to go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses says, who will I say sent me? And he said, you tell them I am sent you. 
Exodus chapter 3, one of the most profound texts in all of Scripture. God, who desires to be known by his creation, he introduces himself to us. I am, or I will do what I will do. In other words, there is no category that can define me. Now, that's big because in those days, every culture had little stone or wooden images that they made that looked like some sort of an animal. A bull, an oxen, a goat, uh, an eagle of some sort, or a bird of some sort. And all of these images were designed to show people, these pagan worshipers, what their God was like. And God says, "Uh uh-uh, there is no image that can define me. No image. None. There's not one. You can't boil me down to a goat, to a bear to a cat, to a dog. No image, no animal can show what I am like. And so Moses in the wilderness, the people of Israel are free, and then these incredible words are said in Genesis chapter 1, 27 and 28. Moses, the children of Israel, they don't have a God that they can look at, they can handle with their hands, an, an idol, a graven image. And so God says to Moses, tell the people of Israel this. This is what I want them to know about me, the creator, and them, the created ones. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. God created man in his own image. And that word for image is the same word for idol. God intended that we be his idols on the earth. Now, We are not to be worshipped. Only he is to be worshipped. But oftentimes an ancient king would have a statue made of himself. And these ancient kings often claimed to be deities, gods in the flesh. And they would have a statue set up in uh, in, in a far region in their realm to show people who lived around there who's in charge and they better submit to him. God is telling Moses that you people are made in my image. And the restored humanity, when they are restored, they are going to show all the world what I look like, how I think, what my opinion is on certain issues, how to live. I want to show the world what I'm like by raising up redeemed humans. Humans that have been restored from their sin. And so he says, and God blessed them. And uh, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God wants his people to cultivate beauty and order because God is a God of beauty and and order. This is what we're called to do. Every single person. It doesn't matter who you are. You can be the most known uh, and, and noble uh, pastor or Christian leader, or you can be. You could have gotten born again 30 seconds ago. You might be taking up the offering or directing people where to park or serving people coffee. Every one of us have the same calling in Christ to bring order and beauty God's order and beauty to every place that we touch. Every place. It's not just don't sin. It's bring order and beauty. Show as image bearers of God, let's show the world what we look like. 
This is probably what Jesus had in mind in Matthew 5 when he said that his followers are to be salt and light. They're to be distinguished from a world that is in rebellion against God. Distinguished from that world. But as I mentioned a moment ago, God's image has been defaced by sin. Now, we're still image bearers of God. And so people who are, have been born again, following Jesus for years and years and years and know their spiritual gifts, and then people who are as far from God as you can conceivably imagine, every one of us are image bearers of God. Every one of us. We have talents, and skills, things that we love that are beautiful, that show that we're image bearers of God. But all of us are born broken. All of us are. All of us are born in rebellion to God. All of us are. Every one of us. Every one of us. Civilization doesn't generally lend itself to the common good like God created it to. But rather, it usually lends itself to systemic oppression. And every one of us, at some level, take part in systemic oppression. Every one of us. Every time we feast on pornographic images, we are feasting on the lives of people who are slaves and have been trafficked. Every single time. Every single time. I don't say that to shame you if you struggle with that. That's That's a tough burden to overcome. But God wants you to be free. He wants you to yearn for something beautiful and yearn for something beautiful for people who are broken. Every one of us who use intimidation to lead our children is an, is a, is an expression of our brokenness before God. Every one of us who work in such a way to simply make money and increase our realm rather than the, to the glory of God, we are showing that we are defaced as God's image bearer. We all contribute to the brokenness of our world. And so when you get to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and as Tanya just read a moment ago, there's this inventory of all of these sins. Paul is not just saying, these are a bunch of bad sins, don't do them. That's not what he's saying. He's not fussing at us. He's reminding us that as image bearers of God, we are called to bring something the Jews say is shalom, order, beauty, wholeness to our world. This is what Paul is calling Timothy to do as a young minister of the gospel. And so I want to spend a couple of minutes talking through this inventory of sins that he says here. 2 Timothy 3 verse 1, But understand this, that in the last days, and the last days is a biblical term that basically encompasses the time from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. This is the last days. This is the end times. This is what the Bible means by that when it uses that terminology. And the end times, Paul is trying to tell Timothy and all of us who read this, the end times are dangerous to our souls. We are living in a world that is growing more and more and more decayed. It is dangerous to our souls. I want to ask you, do you actually believe that? I know that's the right thing to say. Yes, well, yes, amen, yes. But do you really believe that? I know you're saying the right answer, but like, I want you to ser- think about this. Because a lot of us, a lot of us have growing and burgeoning affections for the things of this world. I know we can say amen on Sunday morning. 
but we won't start making momentum in being trained in righteousness as the scriptures teach here until we really recognize that the vices that are in our lives are broken, they are rebellion, they hurt you, they hurt your family, and they hurt people around you. You've got to believe that. You've got to believe that. You've got to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit when your employees chafe under your leadership because you're too harsh, you're too mean, you're too demanding. You've got to feel convicted by the Holy Spirit by that. You've got to be convicted by the Holy Spirit in the way that you interact with people in your life. When you are unkind to people, do you see that as rebellion against God? When you're unkind to people, I don't mean you just you know, drop an F-bomb or you cuss somebody out. I mean just, just unkindness that we often overlook every day in our lives. Do we really see that as an offense against God and defacing His creation that was made in His image? Because no matter who you're talking to, the most holy Christian or the most desperate sinner, every one of those people were made in God's image. And when we are unkind to people and sin against people, we are sinning against something that God made for himself, for his glory. So it's easy to say yes, amen. And amen, if I was sitting there, I'd probably say the same thing. But I want you to think about that. Feel something when I talk about this stuff. Do you really feel sadness And do you mourn over the way that you might betray someone or speak evil to someone or talk about someone behind their back, whether it's true or not? You should feel that way. As a follower of Jesus, the Spirit of God is inside of you as a follower of Jesus, leading you to feel sorrow for that. We should feel those things. But the Scriptures speak of living in such a way that our hearts can be calloused over and we actually suppress the presence of God in our lives who is leading us to feel sadness over our sin because we just don't want to feel that. We live in a world that wants us to feel triumphant and victorious and happy all the time. Happy clappy is the name of the game. Every commercial that you see on TV is telling you a story. We want to make you happy. We want to make you happy with little or no work, but all your money. (laughs) That's, That's the story that our world is telling us. We are being immersed in this story. And the more and more we're immersed in it, the more and more we're going to chafe when guys like me and other preachers get up and preach sermons that are like, uh, I don't want to hear this. We should feel sadness over our sinfulness. If we don't feel sad over it, we can't repent. We can't repent. And so Paul's going through this inventory. He says, for people will be lovers of self. Lovers of self. It's interesting, I want to say in verse 1, The word there for difficulty, it's a word in the Greek that's only used in one other place in Scripture. And it's used in Matthew 8, 28 to describe someone who was overcome by a demonic impulse because they were demon-possessed. That's how Paul characterizes these end times. It overcomes you and it's demonic violence. I think we can all attest that that's true. How many of you have said, like me, I wish I could just stop doing this? (laughs) I feel overcome by this. I wish I could change this behavior in my life. I wish I didn't think that way all the time. I wish I was different. We all have those I wish statements that we make. Every one of us does. So there's no condemnation in Christ. Here's the good news of grace. If you're in grace, you're not going to go to hell because you feel that way. Jesus has already suffered for you. 
Jesus has already taken it on his back for you, in his hands, in his feet. He has already died for you. He was vindicated for you in your place. So it's great. We can feel sadness over our sin, and we can lean into Jesus knowing that we will be accepted by God. We can go to him when we are broken, when we are weak, which is every day, and we can receive forgiveness, and we can receive mercy, and we can receive grace to begin to change and grow in him. This is grace. This is grace. So he says this, For people in the end times, the last days, will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungodly, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, uh, slanderous. I mean, all of these, all of these things, they're not just the bad sins. This is a generic inventory that Paul has put together to show how we can be dragged down and bogged down by the powers of this present evil age, how it can drain us of our life, how it can core us out, how it can steal from us our remaining humanity. These are what these things do. Paul's not saying don't do these things because good Christians shouldn't do these things. He's throwing a life preserver to Timothy. Please, my dear son, he's saying, don't engage in these behaviors. They will kill you. They will kill your church. They will kill your loved ones. They will kill you. And he names all of these things. And then at the end of that, in verse 5, he says, avoid such people. Now, for too long, people have used that verse as a justification to not hang out with people who don't know Jesus. I ain't going to have sinners at my dinner table, you know. There's sinners in that church, you know. I mean, we, we come up with like, we, we create like these monastic lifestyles where we don't ever hang out with people who don't know Jesus because they might infect us with something that they have. That, is, that cannot be what Paul meant here. Here's why. This is why we're a church devoted to the Bible, the clear interpretation of Scripture. Think about 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 11. Paul says this. I want, I, I wrote to you, rather, in my letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and the swindlers, the idolaters of this world. Since then you would need to go out of the world not to be with them. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother who unrepentantly, he's saying, involves themselves in in this lifestyle. He's talking about uh, withdrawing from people who claim to follow Jesus, who unrepentantly engage in these behaviors. Withdraw from them. Avoid those people. Because the context here, he's talking about false preachers who come into homes. It's this mysterious text right after this where he talks about women who are, who are pulled down by their sins. And, and so obviously there's some sort of particular incident taking place in the church there where uh, the, the, there are certain women who are vulnerable and they're being taken advantage of by false preachers. Man, I'm glad we don't have that in our culture today. Can't tell you how many times I've heard stories of people who empty their bank accounts to give to a TV preacher who tells them that they'll be blessed Blessed, and they drive away in their Bentley, and those people are trying to figure out how to pay their light bill the next month. Deceive vulnerable people who are deceived by evil preachers. That's what he's talking about here in this text. For people will be lovers of self, 
So if I ever drive a Bentley, you know something's wrong. Uh, <laughs> lovers of self. Lovers of money. I don't think anybody here drives a Bentley. If you do, no condemnation. Uh, uh, lovers of money. Proud. The arrogant. Abusive. I mean, all of these things. He says, don't hang out with people who practice these things unrepentantly and who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. This is why as a church, we want to be, and we've got a long way to go. I'll admit it. We've got a long way to go. But we want to be a church that is a place of deep love. I know too many people who object to the church and say, you know what, forget that. Forget that. Church people are some of the worst people I know. I don't ever want somebody to be able to say that about our church. Now, that's going to happen every once in a while because, you know, when we're leading people to Jesus and they're growing in their faith, you know, people are going to have some immaturity in their lives. And guess what? I'm going to mess up too. So will you. But generally speaking, I want our church to be a place of deep love. Deep love. This is what Paul wants here too. Deep love. These aren't just examples of bad behavior, my friends. This is the opposite of shalom. Order. Beauty. Care. Love. Love. I love what Ron said last week. Sin is the obstruction of friendship with God. It obstructs wholeness in humanity. Powerful statement. Sin is the obstruction. Oh, cool. I can see it in the back wall. That's awesome. I didn't know we could do that. Look at that. Isn't that cool? Um, sin is the obstruction. I'm, I'm undiagnosed ADHD. Sin is the obstruction of friendship with God. It obstructs wholeness in humanity. Wholeness in humanity. Now jump down to uh, verse 10. You, however, Timothy, he's talking to his son in the faith, Timothy, coming in for a landing. You, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct. Now listen to all, now listen to this other inventory that Paul gives here. He says, Timothy, you have followed me in doing something. Here's what Timothy followed Paul in doing. You have followed my teaching, my conduct. My aim in life, not just his behavior. He followed his aim in life. Many Christians don't have the right aim in life. That's why they can't stop sinning. That's why we can't get over those addictions that are uh, uh, repetitive and redundant in our lives. That's why we can't get over stubborn sinfulness in our lives. Oftentimes, we don't share the same aim in life. Our aim in life is still to gratify ourselves, and we wonder why we keep gratifying ourselves. Church services ain't going to fix that. They're not. Bible studies won't fix that. Recovery groups won't fix that. It takes having a different aim in life. This is what I think Ezekiel meant when he prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus about how when the Spirit of God comes, he will exchange our stony heart for a heart of flesh. When he talks about sharing his same aim in life, he's talking about how we have the same want to. We've got the same want to. The same aim in life. He said, you share my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. You shared my persecutions. Remember that story in uh, Acts chapter 14 where Paul goes into this town called Lystra and he's stoned? outside the city. Then his, the disciples come to him and minister to him and raise him up and bring him back in the city. Nurses wounds. He teaches some more. And then he leaves the next day. It's Timothy's hometown. 
Timothy was probably there as a young disciple. And so when Paul says, you, you, you followed my persecutions, my sufferings, he may have that in mind. You followed me. You stayed in the faith even when you saw my body hit the ground after succumbed to... How many times was his body hit with rocks? Oh, it's awful. Timothy stayed committed to the Lord when he saw that. My steadfastness, my, my persecutions, my sufferings, all those things that happened to me, which persecutions I endured, yet from the Lord, but, yep, sorry, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Now, I've got a friend who wrote a book. It's called uh, Imitating God in Christ. His name is Jason Hood. And uh, great brother. And uh, he, in this book that he wrote, Imitating God in Christ, he asks this question. What does Paul explicitly say that he teaches everywhere and in every church? What does Paul explicitly say that he teaches in everywhere and in every church? He said he's asked this to seminary students. He's asked this to Sunday school classes. He's asked this to people. Everywhere he goes, he asks this question when he's teaching. And he said not one time has a a student in any of his classes got this wrong. He's a professor at Gordon-Conwell up in Boston. He said not one time up to the publishing of this book has anyone ever gotten the right answer. Now the question isn't, what did Paul preach in every church? He preached the gospel. He preached you can be justified by Christ's righteousness. He preached all that stuff. But there's something that Paul claims that he said he preached everywhere and in every church. And in one place of the Bible, he says, this is what I preach in every church I go to. And it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul teaches his own ways in Christ everywhere and in every church. He didn't just preach the gospel generically. Everywhere and in every church, Paul preaches his own ways. That almost sounds heretical. Watch me, guys. Every church I go to, I'm preaching my ways. Not Jesus' ways, my ways. That's not what he's saying. But he was so immersed in the kingdom of God that he could say, I want you to follow Jesus and learn the ways of Jesus, so watch me. Do you think that's common in the church today? Do you think that may be why there are so many people who are sour to the church today? That we have so few people, including preachers, who would never dare utter that? Don't watch me, man. I want you to love Jesus. I can relate to that. I can relate to this. But this is what Paul says that he preaches everywhere and in every church. Watch me, and then you'll learn the ways of Christ. Watch me. Watch me. And so there's something here that I want to talk about as we come in for a landing this morning. Being a person of God's word is not just isolated to memorizing scripture and following your Bible reading plan. Follow your Bible reading plan. Memorize scripture. What I'm saying is that we need some architecture around that. So there's two ways that Paul said Timothy learned the gospel. There's two ways he learned the gospel in this text. The first way was imitating the Apostle Paul, and the second was studying Scripture. He talks about his grandmother and his mother, Lois and Eunice, who taught him in God's Word as he grew up. He said, there's two ways, Timothy, that you will learn the gospel and be grounded in the gospel and continue to grow in the gospel. It's not just by attending Bible studies. 
It's by being around people that you can imitate who show you what it looks like to follow Jesus. And this is why I get up here week after week after week after week, and I remind you guys that church is not just what we do on Sunday mornings. It is about being involved in a community of believers in which there are really broken people and people who are broken and are becoming whole, and we learn to follow Jesus by encouraging one another, by by challenging one another, watching one another, holding each other accountable. That's what it looks like to grow in God's Word. It's not just an intellectual exercise to grow in the knowledge of Scripture. To grow in the knowledge of Scripture is also to interact with it with other believers. So it's not just being alone studying God's Word. And I want you to think about the flip side of this. The flip side of this. How many of us have seen, and if you've grown up in the church, your church upbringing has been you watching one person who unrepentantly sins after another, not because they don't know the Bible, but because they don't know anyone else who lives the way they're called to live. I remember a time in our youth group when I was a kid when it seemed like everybody was in and out of the sack. Everybody was. Everybody was. And I remember being so perplexed by that. I get the impulse. I get the temptation. I do. But I I was so perplexed by that. How is it that people can unrepentantly behave this way? And I remember more times than once, somebody would say to me when I would challenge them, well, who? I don't know anybody in the church who's a virgin. I don't know anybody in the church who's not sexually active. Everybody is. If I don't do that, I'm going to be a weirdo. When we don't see people living by God's word, it actually empowers us to sin more because it's like, why? Who even cares? What's the point? If everybody else is doing it, I might as well do it too. And this is why a church, the leadership of local churches, should be leading in such a way that we develop an architecture where we pursue God together. And so that when you come into our church assembly, we can lovingly encourage you to pursue godliness. And it's not like we're asking you to turn into a cow. Become a zebra. Stop behaving this way. We need people in our lives that we can imitate, people that we can follow, people that we can look at and go, man, I want to be like that. If we want to grow in God's word, we've got to have people like that in our lives. We've got to have people like that in our lives. And so Paul finishes by saying this, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, when you hear every good work, don't think, I've got to be a good boy or good girl. Think every good work in terms of my nature being restored as an image bearer of God. I bring shalom and love and order and beauty to my world around me with, my, with the particular gifts that God has given me. I bring order to my world around me. And no matter what your gifting is, it can be something hyper-creative that is like, wow, I wish I could do that, or something as simple as I know how to give the best hugs you can give. You all have gifts. All of you do. Every one of you has the gift to lift up 
a broken or damaged heart. That's what a gift is. Don't think about it just in terms of the arts. Now, the problem in the church over the 20th century is we only thought of giftings in terms of like doing something really super spiritual. And so people who were in the arts, we looked at and blew off. That wasn't important. That wasn't spiritual. We're trying to restore that. Great music, great artwork, great business principles that you live by, trying to seek the common good for the customers that you serve. That is shalom. But in addition to shalom, you can simply be a person who works the humblest job, and you have the best smile that anybody is going to see that day. That is shalom. Whatever your gift is, God has called you to bring order and kindness and love and care for the common good in your world. That is your call as a human being, my friends. So that should call us all to think about the way we interact with people. Social media, in church services, in the parking lot on the way out. We should all be thinking about how we interact with one another. All of us should. And interestingly, he ends this, this section at least, by saying God's word, he doesn't just say our words. He says it's God's breathed out word. It's his breath. Why does he say it that way? Why does he say it that way? I can think of several other spots in scripture where it talks about the breath of God. Think of it, John 24, or I'm sorry, John 20, verse 22, where Jesus is blessing his disciples and he walks up and he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's interesting because it was just a few weeks later that they're sitting in the upper room in Acts chapter 2 waiting on the Holy Spirit. Apparently he hadn't come yet. Waiting on him. And what happens when the Holy Spirit comes? There's a mighty rushing wind. I wonder if they're sitting there thinking to ourselves, Thinking to themselves, oh, this must be it. Jesus breathed on us. Here's the wind. This must have been it. I think about Genesis, the big Genesis, way back in the beginning, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when God breathes into mankind, humankind's nostrils, man's nostrils, the breath of life. And here, when he talks about God's word, he doesn't just say, memorize it. Read it. He takes it from an abstract angle. He says, God's word is God's breathed out life. Receive it. Receive it. In the same way God's breath animated a body that had no life in it. In the same way that God's breath animated a church that was in hiding and made it the most uh, uh, powerful movement of believers. God's saying it's through interacting with God's word, my word, that my breathed out, my breath will animate you. So what do I want you to do? I want you to just believe that. I want you to hang on to it. I want you to position yourself in such a way, your posture, that you will learn to love God's word. He talks about training in righteousness. I don't know about you, but training is not fun. Training is never fun because training implies that you're learning a skill that you don't have. I would rather do things that I'm good at. But training means I've got to learn things that I'm not good at. And we all need to be trained in the knowledge of God. And how does that happen? It's it's through studying God's word. 
but it's through studying God's word in a context of relationship and community where we can push one another, hold each other accountable, encourage one another when we're failing, because most of us need encouragement every day, every day. I need people who can look at me and say, man, I can tell you're struggling. Come on, let me, let me encourage you. We all need that in our lives. All of us do. All of us do. We as people, one of, our, one of our biggest issues of brokenness in the church is our pride that keeps us from saying, I am needy. Our pride keeps us from saying that. And God wants us to learn how to say that to one another. I am needy. I need you. I need your love. I need your care. It is scary as heck to say that. I know. But we need to learn how to get really good at saying it. I need you. I need you. Jesus, I thank you for today. I thank you for your people. I thank you for your word. And I pray in your name that all of us would have a growing affection for the word of God. I pray that we would have a growing affection for your breath. Fill us, O God, with your breath in Jesus' name. Amen.